text chosen for this afternoon's sermon is found in Judges 3, verses 7 through 11. So starting at verse 7. The Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served Baal of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Heshem and Rishathion, kings of Aram and Aram, to whom the Israelites were subject for three years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Hophni, the son of Phinehas, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's pet and he went to war. And the Lord gave Heshem and Rishathion into the hands of Ophniah, who overpowered him, so the land had peace for forty years until Ophniah, son of Phinehas, died. The sermon uh, chosen for this afternoon uh, is is not a Lord's Day service. I know the brothers had had an early camera on this morning, um, so this we have a sermon from the this sermon was prepared by Reverend Reuben Bradenhawk of the Pilgrim Community Reformed Church, London, Ontario. After the reading of the sermon, we will sing from hymn 52, stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved in our Lord, the one thing that the preachers must do is preach Jesus Christ. That single activity needs to be right at the top of every minister's job description because it's what we're commanded in the scriptures. We have the example of the Apostle Paul who said in Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. A preacher is under divine compulsion to preach the message of Christ, or where would we be without him? He is our righteousness, he is our salvation, and he is our life. Now, sometimes it seems pretty straightforward that activity of preaching of, of preaching Christ, when you open the letters of Paul, take a passage from the four gospel, it nearly hops into your lap. In almost every paragraph, you can't find the message, you can't help but find the message of Christ. Well, no problem preaching Christ this week, the preacher says to himself. But other times, this activity becomes very hard. It's not so clear the connection to the cross. Sure, we know that Christ's footprints are found on every page of the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New. As Jesus once said about the Law and the Prophets, these are the scriptures that testify about me, John 5, verse 39. They testify about him, but how exactly? Where is he in those ancient laws and regulations? Or where is he in those stories about those long-ago kings and battles? These are texts that can make a preacher scratch his head and wonder, can't I just skip this week? Or maybe I can leave Christ out of this message. Would anybody notice? Yet if a preacher takes that command seriously, if he understands just how important Christ is, then he'll never leave them out. He'll work hard to preach the cross from every, each and every passage, but at the end of the day, we need to hear about our Savior. 
we might have all kinds of expectations for the Sunday sermon, but according to Scripture, there's one that's not negotiable. Has Jesus been lifted up? Has the cross been preached? So now we come to Othniel in Judges 3. What about him? What does this old judge of Israel have to say about the gospel salvation Jesus served in? Let us then open our text as follows with the theme, God graciously raises up Othniel as the first judge to Israel. We will see in the first place Israel's evil of idolatry, and in the second place God's judgment through oppression, and in the third place Othniel's work of deliverance. So in the first point, Israel's evil of idolatry. The book of Judges begins on a note of trouble. Joshua died. For decades, he had been their strong leader as Israel conquered and divided the promised land. Still, they weren't able to drive out their enemies completely. There were still pockets of resistance left. So when Joshua, so with Joshua dead, who would lead them into these battles? At the start of Judges, you can almost sense that the Israelites lose their momentum. And without a faithful leader, leader, the people also aren't very far from anarchy. That becomes one of the ugly themes in Judges. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When God takes away his restraining hand on sinners, there's no authority to keep us in line. It's all but certain that moral disaster is about to break out. Chapter 2 describes a pattern repeated, repeated so often in this book and prepares us for the worst, if you will. The people will do evil in God's sight, usually by serving Baal. So the Lord would chastise Israel by sending the nations against them. Yet, after a period of discipline, God's people would cry out, and he'd have mercy on them. The Lord would save them by raising a judge, someone to beat back the enemy and provide godly direction. But no sooner than he was dead, the people would fall again into sin and idolatry. That is how it went. Time and time again, a vicious and almost hopeless cycle. In this book, we find a record of 12 judges altogether, six major and six minor, and probably there may have been more. Keep in mind that when we read about a time of peace under this or that judge, it doesn't mean that all of Israel was united under one leader. Often, a judge fought enemies in just one region of the land, so peace in one area did not necessarily mean peace in another. All in all, this was hardly the situation the people imagined when they crossed the Jordan many years ago. It was a prosperous and fertile land, to be sure. But where was the peace and security that they were all hoping for? Good crops aren't worth a whole lot if they're always being stolen or burned. We get a hint of God's reason for this earlier in chapter 3. There were a number of pagan people in and around Palestine, and that is why. These are the nations which the Lord blessed that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had given to his prophet Joel. Also, in this time of tenuous peace, the Lord had a purpose. He was testing the people. He was refining them. How will they respond to their enemies and pagan neighbors? What will Israel do to handle this disappointment? And how would they handle this frustration? Would they trust and obey? Beloved, it's not so often in hardship of life that our true character always comes out. The one thing, it's one thing to be richly blessed, to find success, or to see our plans work out just so, but what about 
when there's a snag? What about when we have setbacks? What about when we're experiencing sorrow? Or what about when there's a lure into something evil? Isn't it then that we realize we have so much to learn as Christians? Isn't it then that we realize again our need to depend entirely on God and on His grace? So it was for the people of Israel. God was seeking to make them holy. So they'd have to wrestle against pagan religions. And a new generation had to learn how to fight under God's direction. Our text gives us the account of the first judge in this period. And compared to some of the other accounts, this story was told with a minimum amount of detail, short and sweet, to the point. Nothing allowed to distract us from the clear message of God's intervention. The Lord saved his people. That's the story. But first, the context. The reason they were, there was need for deliverance. Here we have it again. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and the Asherahs. Verse 7. We have all heard of Baal and Asherah. This was the male and the female god of vegetation and fertility. If you wanted a good harvest, these were the ones that you would call on. They have no guarantee, of course, but they made you feel pretty good about your prospects. Because agriculture was an important activity in Canaan, where shrines still litter the countryside. And the people of Israel were lured to go there. They wanted good crops, after all. They wanted a little extra assurance one or two God could give them. They could depend on them. But the result of the idolatry was unmistakable, as it always is. They forgot the Lord their God. Let's read verse 7. This is exactly what Moses had warned against in Deuteronomy. Don't serve other gods you find in the land. It was so predictable, but they did it anyway. So why did they? Why would you ever conclude that bowing down to a wooden pole is the answer to your troubles? Now before we scorn the Israelites too loudly, can't the same be asked about us? For haven't we made our own idols and bowed down to our own images? Yes, just what could be attraction of a false god? Well, consider the nature of faith. Faith needs an object. That is, we need something or someone to look to. We need somewhere to place our trust. And the tendency of the heart is to look for this in all the wrong places. For we cherish the things that are visible, and we love what we can control. We trust whatever seems to us most real and most right. That was the reasoning of the Israelites at Sinai when they made the golden calf. They made a god, a god they could see, a god they could feel, a god they could touch, to feel better about. That's also how it goes for us. In our unbelief, we don't always experience God's nearness. Though he's never left us, doubting his promises, we think we need a little extra help. Failing to embrace the fullness of fellowship with God, we look for our, satisfa our satisfaction in other places. So what kind of idols do we need? I don't want to give you a long list, but it could be anything, and it is anything. Anything we allow to come between God and us. It's what prevents us from walking in a devoted relationship with him alone. And what saps our energy, our zeal, our trust, our time away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and pours it into something else, that's what it is. It's the meaning we seek, the purpose we chase after, the gratification that we crave on our own terms, apart from the Lord and apart from his grace. Take a moment, search out the idols in your life. Idols are revered on our streets. 
revealed by your superior. First, we can ask ourselves, what am I trusting in for this next week? Or what is it that I am anxious about? Or what am I thinking about for my future? Idols are revealed by our priorities. What's most important to me? What do I what do I first want to spend my time doing? And what do I first want to spend my money on? Many idols are also revealed by our fears. What do we fear most? Do we fear being alone? Do we fear being sick and having sickness? Do we fear poverty? We can ask, what if this possession was taken away? Or what if activity was no longer possible? Or what if this person was no longer around? Would I still be happy? Could I still be thankful? Beloved, the Word and the Spirit confront us with our idolatry. They tell us that we are great sinners, but even more, that Christ is a great Savior. For Jesus came to save us from our idols. He came to show us, beyond any doubt, that we've no need of anything besides the Lord. For he reveals God like he has never been revealed before at the cross. And at this cross, Jesus showed that we may indeed trust in him alone. He showed that God's grace is sufficient for our every need. When we believe in Christ, he can be our security. He can be our joy. He can banish our every fear. So let's now consider point two, God's judgment through oppression. If Israel's idolatry was so predictable, then so was God's judgment. For the Lord had told them he would do this. He would use the nations to chastise them. This step in the painful cycle was noted in chapter 2. As we read, God sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. Notice the language of selling. God is displeased with his people. So he takes away his owner's protection. He exposes them to the other nations. Whoever wants them, they can have them. The first that laid hands on Israel was Shechem Mishael. Mishakayim, described here as the king of Mesopotamia in verse 8. This was the region to the north of Palestine. We don't know a lot about this king, except that even uh, the mention of his name would probably have struck fear in the hearts of the Israelites. Literally, it means Cushan the dark, or Cushan the doubly wicked. What kind of an enemy is on his way? This is the kind. If this kind of enemy is on your way, you should be afraid. We're also not told much about this time under Cushan, but the outline in chapter 2 speaks of recoiling and harassing. It speaks of distress and groaning. Cushan, the doubly wicked, probably imposed a heavy tax on the Israelites, plundered their land. For eight long years, Israel was under this foreign power and essentially was like a return to captivity. They were slaves in their own land, oppressed and beaten. And remember, this misery was repeated time after time. After a period of peace, then there was a period of sin, and another nation would invade. And then their foe would be would completely dominate, crops were stolen, taxes were imposed, and a cloud of fear and anxiety was all over the land. This the later Judge Gideon asked a painful question. So important and central to this period. He asked, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? But on one hand, it shouldn't be it shouldn't have been easy to see why. If Israel if 
break the covenant with God, then Peter gave action to him. His justice demanded patience. This was the consequence of sin, plain and simple. But if we need to look closer, of course, this wasn't simply a case of crime and punishment. God handed down a penalty to one who'd broken the law. No, once more, God had a, God had a gracious purpose also amiss. Why else would he let this cycle continue for three centuries or more? After a couple of times, God would have given up on Israel. We say he should have given up. For how tiring was this for him? What an embarrassment his people were for him. A dozen times he could have sold them to their enemies and called it done. But a dozen times and more, the Lord graciously took them back. For God always sees the big picture. He's never just a reactive God, moving from crisis to crisis. He never loses momentum. Also, in these dark days of the judges, God is working out a plan. A plan to save. A plan outlined before the foundation of the world. So powerfully, this speaks of the faithfulness of our God. With tyrants like Shushan, Eglon, and Jabin, the Lord might have brought judgment on his people. But that didn't mean he had changed his mind about them, not for a minute. They were still his covenant people. He still loved them. Loved them not for their sake, but for Jesus' sake alone. And because he loved them, he'd also bring this discipline upon them. Now at the time, you can be sure that it was not easy to accept. It's rarely easy to see the blessings in the negative. Hebrews 12 speaks of this. The author says that God was baptizing Joseph in a different way. Perhaps through persecution, perhaps through illness, or perhaps through unemployment, or perhaps through the loss of a loved one, or just that ongoing struggle with the brokenness of life. And admittedly, such discipline is hard. No person seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. When we go through hardship, joy and thanksgiving are certainly far from our minds. Yet, we must be determined to see in it the gracious hand of our God. For the Spirit explains, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Jesus said, hardship shows us that God is treating us as his own far better than we realize. God knows we need to be corrected, and we need to be taught, and we need to be shaped. It's what our earthly fathers do, yet in all weakness, and it's what our heavenly father does, yet so perfectly. We have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Verse 10. Remember this, God chases his people for our profit, that we may be partakers in his holiness. This is what God wanted for Israel, that they might have learned to obey him. And it's what he wants for us. He wants discipline to yield fruit of righteousness. When we're trained by our hardships, trust, trained to trust and obey, trained to walk in humility before God. Now it's vital that we look at God's discipline in the right way, for we might still want to put equal terms between discipline and punishment. You do something wrong, you pay the price. It's easy to conclude when we suffer that maybe God's still holding some old transgression against us, like he's letting us know that he hasn't really forgotten. But beloved, that's not what God is doing. There are times when we are humbled, 
there are sins that God lets us feel the effects of, even sometimes for years. But know this, as bad as it gets, and as terrible as it feels, the Father is not punishing us for our guilt. He is not seeking to satisfy his wrath against us, for what man could even bear the curse of God and live? Israel couldn't, and we can't. Who could ever endure God's just punishment on guilt besides our Lord and Savior? But by discipline, he would have us learn holiness, and he would have us seek him for our deliverance. In the third point, we will discover Othniel's work of deliverance. It's easy to presume upon the goodness of the Lord. Not until things take a turn for the worse do we realize how much we really need him. We turn to God in prayer, maybe even for the first time in a long time. But for Christ's sake, the Lord hears our prayers and he draws us to him. Also, in their time of suffering, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord answered. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Shimei, Caleb's younger brother. As we said, this is the first judge that God sends. Now the term judge is misleading. We shouldn't picture officials presiding over courts of law, but leaders with a wide range of power. These judges pointed out the right way of, to the people, not just on the battlefield, but also in the home and in the city and in the tabernacle. Some of these 12 judges were quite obscured. Everyone has heard of Samson and his exploits, but few remember Othniel. Yet compared to many of the others, Othniel actually stands out for nothing negative is said about him. The impression is that he is that he faithfully and humbly carried out God's given work. And if you look back, Othniel had already distinguished himself as a brave leader among the people. In Joshua 15, we learn that this same Othniel led Judah into battle against the fortified, a fortified Canaanite city. That was a long time ago. So by the time of, of our text, we might suppose Othniel was getting on in age. Because of his age, he might seem unlikely as a deliverer. How is this old guy supposed to help us? What can he ever do against Cusick, the doubly wicked? In this regard, Othniel fits in among the other judges who were often implausible leaders. One was a woman, another one was the son of a harlot, and others had dubious family ties. Few were model leaders. Now we should know by now that God doesn't always pick those who are voted most likely to succeed. And in this way, the judges point ahead to another unexpected savior. Yes, to Jesus Christ, our savior. For Jesus too seemed most improbable. He wasn't one to push himself forward. He wasn't one to demand attention. As we read in Isaiah 62, verse 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Here, though, is what makes, it, makes all the difference. God chooses and God equips. It is said of Othniel, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. His commission was not of man, but it was from God. And the Lord wouldn't let Othniel go into battle alone. So for, all, for the other judges like Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and Samuel, all of these, they all received the spirit. The spirit to work wisdom and courage and power. 
they were saved, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord Almighty, Zechariah 4, 6, and 8. Beloved, let's think again of our Savior. He was a man, one who faced all the limitations we face. He was subject to all the temptations that we endure. He, too, needed the Spirit of spirit for the work he'd undertake without the spirit his mission would have ended in failure but anointed with the spirit he was faithful filled with the spirit and he conquered all the hosts of the devil and god's power othniel too accomplished great things against the formidable opponents who went out to war and the lord delivered cushion the dark king of mesopotamia into his hand and his hand prevailed over cushion the dark again there's very little detail. The author tells of no careful strategies and of no careful schemes. This is all he has to say. The Lord delivered. Because that's all that matters. In our misery and in our guilt, even in that almost endless cycle of sin and repentance, the sin and repentance that describes our lives, we can cry out to God in Christ and he will deliver. The result, the judge was shrewd, Though the land had rest for 40 years, after years of suffering, there was relief in Israel. After bondage and oppression, there was freedom in the land. And isn't that what everyone still wants? An end of war? End of conflict? Protection from disease and from freedom, and freedom from poverty? Yet, that's not the peace that we need. True peace isn't that happy feeling you have when all is well. It's all about how things stand with God and us. And the reality is, we once were God's enemies on account of sin. But Christ has given us peace with God. Othniel brought the land into a 40-year rest. But Christ did something far better. For in him, we've been reconciled to our Creator and restored to fellowship for all times. Christ went between us and the Lord. And by the cross, he bridged that gap. He bore the curse of our guilt. Now God calls us friends. He calls us his children, his loved ones. Where before there was only war and hostility, now there's peace. And it's a peace that's so powerful, it can flow into every corner of our lives. If we have peace with God through Christ, then we also will have peace. That is, when we know Christ, we can have contentment, whatever our outward circumstances. We can face all uncertainties of a daily existence with an abiding serenity because things are good between God and us. Bottom line, we know God won't leave us or forsake us for Jesus' sake alone. When we come to the last line of our text, if we wanted, we could take it as another anonymous discouraging note that Othniel, the son of Enosh, died. But we know what happens in Israel whenever a righteous leader passes away. We also know that our God is faithful. After Othniel, he will send another, and then another, and another. For a thousand years and more, God will keep on sending saviors to his people as judges, kings, and prophets, until the one who died and who rose again on the third day, until the one who delivered us from all our enemies and who takes away our sins forever. With him we, re we proclaim, him we worship, and him we trust, Jesus Christ, our great redeemer. Amen.